0: Me, if you will, to the book of Deuteronomy. Our text for tonight is Deuteronomy chapter 9. We'll be reading the entirety of it. Deuteronomy 9, it's a, it's a long text, but I hope you can follow with me. And there are Pew Bibles if you need them. Deuteronomy 9, continuing in this study of a number of the passages from Deuteronomy, not doing verse by verse of the entire book but continuing to meditate on this very important Old Testament book, Deuteronomy chapter 9, at verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, who you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord speaks Swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of Of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, they have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small, until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. And then skipping down to verse 25, Moses uh, has given some other examples of their stubborn rebellion. Verse 25, So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these forty days and nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. This is God's word. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving a series of sermons preparing the people of Israel to enter the promised land after these long 40 years. And he is seeking to establish them and instruct them, to prepare them to walk with God in faith in their God as they face the challenges that will be before them. Reading back about these incidents and these Old Testament narratives at that time, you may think, that seems like a whole different world than the world in which we live. A mountain burning with fire facing the prospect of entering this land and having to go to war against these giants, so to speak, and the golden calf incident. But even though our situation may be different in many ways, God's word speaks to you and to me, just as God's word spoke to them. They faced the same kinds of temptations that we face, the temptations to various fears, and also the temptations to desires that were wrong, temptations to sin in different way, the same kinds of temptations and fears that we face. And we have much to learn about walking with God and about guarding our hearts in the pilgrim journey of faith as we walk with Christ. And I want us from our text to see three lessons about really walking with God in the face of the challenges that we face. When we face challenges to our faith, Keep in view God's promise to be with you by his grace. In verses 1 through 5, Moses is preparing them, and he says, Hear, O Israel, this call to listen to the instruction he gives. That phrase appears a number of times in the book. You are to cross over the Jordan, he says, and this is what you're going to face. There's this description given in verses 1 and 2 that they are called to go to war and dispossess these other nations that are inhabiting these, this land, these wicked nations that have come to this point that their that their sin we've seen in the past sermons, their sin is ripe, so to speak. It's falling under the judgment of God. It must be judged, and God's going to use this instrument of Israel to judge them. But we're told that they're going to face cities great and fortified up to heaven. What an interesting figure of speech. It's like you look at the city walls and they just keep going up to heaven. They're so high. Walls fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim. And then Moses states this hearsay of what the general uh, saying was about them. Of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? That sounds pretty fearful to me, doesn't it? It's daunting. Reminds me of the scene from The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. R. Tolkien's famous work, where Frodo and uh, Sam, his, fa- his faithful companion, have arrived to Mordor, this terrible dark land where the, the Lord of Mordor dwells. And they're stopping at the front gate. They're hiding on this hill above the front gate. And they look down, they see all these armies of the wicked forces of Mordor. And they just cringe. And they think, What? This is where we're supposed to go? You can imagine what the Israelites faced as they thought about the daunting task before them. But Moses makes a number of points here in verses 3, 4, and 5. He is essentially saying to them, God has promised to be with you. God will go with you. Verse 3, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you As a consuming fire is the Lord your God. Your God is a consuming fire. What you think of as daunting is nothing to him. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. It's interesting how they're called to carry out this holy warfare, uh, very unique warfare. We've talked about it in weeks past. But essentially, Moses is saying God will destroy them. He is with you. And then in verses 4 and 5, Moses goes on to exhort them not to think in their heart that somehow they are going to be victorious or they stand because of their righteousness. Don't think that you're getting this promised land because you are more righteous, because of your righteousness that, uh, that you have. Don't think that. It's because of the wickedness of the nations, but it's not because of your righteousness. So it's pointing to grace, salvation by grace. It was all of grace. And then, interestingly, in verse 5, Moses con- concludes that verse by saying, God, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Moses is saying God is going to drive these nations out, and it reaches back to these wonderful covenant promises, these promises that you read in the Old Testament to to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And really, the very heart of God's promises to the patriarchs was, I will be your God, and I will be with you. And God also promised that the whole world would be blessed through them, and we know that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I will be with you, and that was fulfilled ultimately in the coming of Jesus Christ, god with us. As we face challenges to our faith, keep in view God's promise to be with us. One line of application to us is facing the transitions in our lives. When you think of it, the Israelites were going to experience a great transition. We've talked about it. John Hayward talked about it the other week, about how This was a generation raised with manna, and many of them had never had any other kind of food, apparently. Manna is all they'd eaten, so when the the Lord talked about uh, land flowing with milk and honey, they had to try to imagine that. They hadn't tasted that before. And when the book of Joshua begins, it's interesting that this great time of transition of entering the land and... It's interesting that what the Lord says to Joshua in Joshua 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Interesting, isn't it? That promise to be with him. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. These same themes, God's promise to them, And God is with them. Think about just the fact that all of us really continually are facing transitions in our lives. Life is one serious, one continuous series of transitions, both little and great. And it's not easy to face the transitions of this life. We face the fear of the unknown. What's this going to be like? Uh, Maybe we've face the fear, will I be up to this task, whatever it might be? Maybe you're in school or starting a new phase of school or maybe you're heading off to college or maybe you've just graduated from college and you're getting a job and this is going to be all different for you. You're not going to be in the academic environment anymore. Young people may be thinking, uh, I'm gonna, am I going to be able to make it on my own? Am I going to be able to make it on the income that I earn? Maybe for some of you, it's facing the transition of expecting a child for the first time and all that's involved with becoming a parent. That's certainly a a daunting task. Or maybe for some, it's transitioning to see your first child go off to college. I remember what that was like and just what a shock that seemed that I can't believe this is already happening. It seemed like just yesterday she was being born. Or maybe the transition to the empty nest time of life or facing The later years of life or the death of a loved one or a spouse or the process of aging and the increasing health issues that come. We could go on and on. In Sunday school this morning in our brief prayer for the missionaries that we try to do I mentioned to my class that we've been praying the last few months for one of Matt and Jen Irwin's uh, sons Malachi or he goes by the name Kai because In the past months, this school year, he's experienced a degree of discrimination and bullying. Here he is, uh, a foreigner in the London suburbs that are predominantly, in that area, South Asian suburbs. So he's a, a definite minority. He's one of the few typical whites that we would think of there. And so one of their prayer requests has been, this has been a hard year for him. You just don't ever know when you're a, a missionary what kind of costs they're going to be. You don't think about maybe things like that. I remember as a 22 year old, as during my uh, the end of my college experience, uh, one of my professors wrote a letter to a a private school in Fort Worth uh, because he knew that headmaster there and said that I would be a good one for this science job and I just remember suddenly I, all I know is I was flying on a plane to Fort Worth to interview and I had never been in Texas in my life and here I was going to this country day school to teach science and to, ap- to apply for this job and uh, talk about fear. Am I going to be up for this? What will this be like? You and I must expect that we will regularly face situations and transitions in our lives that cause us to be aware of, maybe painfully aware of, our own weaknesses, our own need, but our eyes must be fixed on God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And this powerful promise that he gave to Moses, he gave to Joshua, he gave to Abraham to be with us, in all of these transitions and all the changes of life, and this is not a guarantee that you will be successful in a worldly sense in all you do, but that even in failure, God will be at work in your life to teach you of his all-sufficiency. Isn't that a wonderful truth? And the Israelites needed to know God was going to be with them. I think of how it's described in Second Corinthians Chapter 4, that great chapter about uh, God's sufficiency. And in verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then there's this list that Paul gives. It's interesting. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Would the apostles be seen as successes in the world's eyes, I doubt it. But Paul is saying, Christian, you have the treasure of Jesus Christ in your jar of clay. Trust in him. And as you face the challenges to faith in your life, at this season of your life, whatever season of life this is for you, keep in view God's grace to you in Jesus Christ. I like the way the author to the book of Hebrews talks about it when really he's been talking to them throughout the book about not giving way to fear, not giving way and and not uh, renouncing their faith out of fear because the persecution apparently has become more intense. And it's interesting that when he talks about the Lord being with them, he uses it in chapter 13 verses 5 and 6 as the antidote both for temptations to fear and for temptations to covetousness and greed and discontentment. He says there, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. There's the part about the temptation to, to want more, to covetousness, to not be content. And the antidote is, for he has said, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. My, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And there, that end of the verse is about typical fear of man. We all, to some degree, struggle with the fear of man. What do others think of me? Are they going to approve of me? And we regularly struggle with fear of man issues. So that wonderful truth that God is with us keeps us in these challenges to our faith, both from temptations to fear and temptations to discontentment. Secondly, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, as we face challenges to our faith, secondly, keep in view your tendency to turn away from the Lord. Keep in view your tendency to turn away from the Lord in unbelief, in lack of faith. And here we're looking at the central part of Deuteronomy 9, really verses 6 through 24. I'm not going to read through it all. Obviously, it's a lot, but I want us to think about this. Our unbelief, our lack of faith as Christians can be very ordinary, ordinary in the sense of letting the mindset of the world settle into our hearts and seeing things and reacting to this world uh, apart from the eye of faith, apart from seeing things from a biblical point of view, but as our text describes, unbelief can be very dramatic too. And here's a very dramatic Old Testament incident that's like a riveting incident that should, and it's used in the New New Testament a number of times as a reminder, as really almost a startling incident of unbelief. And a number of times in Deuteronomy 9, the word rebellion is used, the word stubbornness is used. Stubbornness is not always bad if it's stubbornness in faith. That's good. Or stubbornness in persevering, but stubbornness in rebellion and in a pathway of sin, that's not good. And here Moses recounts in Deuteronomy the incident involving the Israelites and the golden calf. You could read it in Exodus 32 as well. And he calls them in verse 7 to remember this. Remember. And do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. And then he goes on to talk about it. And in a sense, it's important we're seeing here to keep in mind the seriousness of sin. The golden calf incident is a very extreme example of the seriousness of sin. And the fact that really, as long as we live on this earth you and I must guard our hearts against the same tendency that the Israelites faced, this tendency to rebellion or unbelief to some degree in all the different spectrum of forms that it comes. Moses is saying to the Israelites before they enter the land, let this sobering incident be a reminder to you that you should never think that you are beyond temptation. And it's interesting, by the time we get to 1 Corinthians The Apostle Paul uses this incident and then says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here are the highlights of the warning we read in Deuteronomy 9. First of all, he reminds them that they have these same tendencies even though, remember, it was their parents who had actually been foremost in doing the deed here. This is the generation that's going to enter the land. We're at the point that all the other generation, those who were above the age of 18, have now died. And this new generation couldn't just say, Moses, that was our parents. We're not like that. No, they were made of the same stuff. And there was this corporate sense that they needed to understand that, and in fact, the other examples he gives In verses 22 to 24, he just named some other places in the wilderness wandering. This new generation was not without sin already. They had fallen as well. And as you read this golden calf incident and remember and think about it, Moses also brings to mind that this idolatry occurred when Moses was up on the very mountain in the presence of God receiving the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and the mountain was still burning. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being at the foot of the mountain and saying, oh, how long is that man Moses going to be up there? Look, the mountain's still on fire. This is getting boring down here. You just wonder what went through their minds. While he was receiving the commandments in the very presence of God, verse 12, says it this way, Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for the Lord, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt, notice how God says they're Moses' people, whom Moses has brought from Egypt, they're, they've stumbled so badly now, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. This word quickly is used a number of the times, and one of the times it's saying this has happened rapidly. Moses isn't even down from the mountain. It's only 40 days and 40 nights. And then we find in verse 17 that Moses comes down and confronts them, and he takes the tablets of stone and smashes them, probably against some rocks, and they shatter, really signifying that the Israelites had already violated this covenant that the Lord had made with them. They've already broken it. Moses wasn't even down with the Ten Commandments. And then we'd find this description of Moses burning the golden calf. Remember, they had collected all their gold earrings and everything and made this golden calf. And in Exodus 32, Aaron essentially says, well, boy, we collected this and we put it in the fire and out popped this golden calf. It's like, we didn't do it. It just happened. And so Moses had to grind it to dust and he put it in the brook. And destroyed it completely. Verse 21. That's a pretty spectacular sin, isn't it? Doesn't get more spectacular than that. And probably you and I would say, we would never do that. Never, ever. But it's interesting that you read 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul applies this. And he says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, and this is the phrase that applies, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then it goes on. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And he goes on to speak about that. And he says in verse 11, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. How much more so is that true for us? The end of the ages has come upon us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. I was thinking about this, the Israelites, 1400, 1500 BC, 1500 years later, plus the Corinthians. Did they think, oh, the Israelites, they are old and ancient folks. And now 2,000 years after the Corinthians, you and I. Every generation faces its own cultural pressure to conform to the typical idolatries of the day. We read this and think, what were they doing? They were being typical, ancient, Near Eastern people. Everyone else conformed to idolatry. That's the way they lived life. That's the way they thought about their world. That's the way they warded off their fears of crop failure or famine or invading armies or whatever fears they might be. They turned to idolatry. And it was a very strong draw. And another element of idolatry was the temptation to sinful desire. It was linked in, typically with sexual immorality and sinful pleasure. And so idolatry was part of the world system. And it was the air they breathed. They swam in the water of it. Even though they had been in Egypt, they had been somewhat separate, still they knew about idolatry. And we come to Corinth, where Paul uses it as an example. The Corinthians were tempted by the pressures of their own society. And we, if we went back to 1 Corinthians 10, they were tempted to eat at the idol temples and houses and participate in in their neighbor's barbecue there, that they were having a party there. And it was idolatrous, but it was all linked to the social stratus of the time. And so it shouldn't surprise us that you and I live with similar cultural idolatries that are very easy to buy into I read an article about a year ago that said that a famous country music star of the past declared that country music had died, that it had lost its way. And the idea that this writer said was that country music no longer spoke about and sang about the themes of life from any kind of moral perspective, like the old country music apparently did about marriage and about uh, uh, facing addiction or things like that. But this author said that this famous country music singer said that it, now it's all about just Friday night, getting drunk, drunk, meeting girls at the bar, and that's what it's all about. I don't know if that article's true or not, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case and then we would say that from a biblical point of view, if that's the way country music is now, then all these songs are just saying that typical, maybe southern, American Friday night activities are all just normal, good old fun. And we sing songs about it now. Listen to the radio about it. You might not even notice what's being said. But it's idolatrous, it's sinful, it's fallen, it's worldly. I'm sure that's very close to the kinds of attitude that the Israelites were thinking. Just a good old golden calf. Isn't that nice? Just what we need to ward off our fears and end our boredom while Moses is up on the mountain. But God says this is serious sin. It is stubborn rebellion. And that's just not the way we naturally think about th- sin. The more you read the Bible, the more you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, the more you see the serious nature of sin and that it is important for each of us as we fight the fight of faith to see how serious sin is. Even though we're saved by grace through faith, it was so costly that Jesus had to die for our sins. We need to be realistic about wayward tendencies of our hearts. We can't close our eyes to these things. Young people, keep this in mind when you go off to college or if you start a job and you're on your own for the first time, you will face new and powerful temptations to sin that maybe you didn't have when you were at home. Don't be surprised at the potential for rebellion against the Lord and possibly in the very ways that the young people around you are telling you, this is normal, this is totally fine. Don't believe what the Bible says about that. Think about what God says. Think about the golden calf incident. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins and rising again in glory to vindicate what he did and now being exalted at the Father's right hand. The word of God is our only guide Without the word of God to tell us what is sin and what is not sin, it's like being lost in the woods and no GPS or no compass to guide you. All you can see is dark trees all around you. You need the compass of God's word to guide you and to see the true nature of sin. Well, finally, as we face challenges to our faith, keep in view The grace and keeping power of Jesus. Keep in view the grace and keeping power of Jesus our interceding Savior. One of the beautiful things about Deuteronomy 9 is you see this theme woven into Deuteronomy 9 of Moses' prayer, Moses' intercession for the Israelites. Here we see him praying and the prayer is at the very end of chapter uh, nine, but there are also allusions to it earlier, and we see that uh, in in verse fourteen, God makes this statement to leave him alone. In other words, is God really saying, commanding Moses, don't pray to him? Commentators don't believe that that's the case. That in a sense, this wasn't a, a divine prohibition. Moses, do not pray. Uh, in fact, it clearly was received by Moses not as forbidding him to pray, but as an inter, as an invitation from God to Moses to intercede, and that is what he does. In fact, it's really interesting that God even offers to destroy the Israelites. Verse fourteen. To blot out their name from under heaven, and I, God, will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. But commentators do not believe that God really, in a sense, hoped for that or wanted Moses to say, Oh yeah, I think I'll take that option. Give me door number one. No, this was an incentive for Moses to pray for them, to be Christ-like. In fact, the Bible says that God would raise up a prophet like Moses, and we know that the greater Moses was Jesus Christ. But just briefly look at this prayer Moses prayed in verses 25 and following. It says, So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights. What a miraculous thing that Moses could pray and to not eat or even drink water for 40 days and nights because the Lord said he would destroy you, verse And in verse 26, we see the first of three different grounds. Moses, in a sense, argues with the Lord or reasons with the Lord. It's like Abraham praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. And verse 26, And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The first ground was linked with the fact that God had redeemed them. In this, this prayer, Moses uses the words you "you," or your 12 times. He's basically saying, they are your redeemed people, oh God. They've been redeemed by you. Do not destroy them. And then in verse 27, the second ground of his prayer is, is the history of God's promises and faithfulness to his covenant, verse 27, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin. Remember, Lord, your promises, the history of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are a people undergirded by the promises of God not based on their righteousness, but based on God's redemption. And then finally in verse 28, the the theme of the glory of God, the ground of the glory of God. Lest the land from which you brought us say, that land, by the way, is Egypt. So Moses is saying, I don't want Egypt and Egyptians to be able to say because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them and because he hated them. He has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. Moses was concerned for the fame of God's name in the world. He didn't want any Egyptians or anyone saying, oh, God couldn't redeem them. God really hated them. He couldn't make them stand. In other words, the glory of God was the abiding ground of his prayer, the vindication of God's honor in the world. Then As you think about Moses praying, think about Jesus Christ. Think of Jesus coming into this earth from his heavenly glory, identifying with us in our humanity, humbling self to the point of death, even death on a cross, rising and being exalted to the Father's right hand. Think of Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, how he identified with us in our brokenness and our separation from God and in our sin to lift his people to heaven, to save them from their sins, to give them eternal life. What a greater prophet this was. Moses was nothing like Jesus Christ. He pales in comparison. This is the gospel. Jesus came and died and rose to save his people completely, And the truth of the gospel is that Jesus completes this work in us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And so we have these vital examples from the New Testament of Jesus interceding. In Romans 8, we find that Paul confirms us in our faith by telling us that Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The intercession, the prayer of Jesus Christ for his people in heaven, even as he stands and sits beside the Father, is a great cause of assurance that God keeps us. And then we find in Hebrews as well, Hebrews Chapter 7, we find this wonderful description of, in verses 25 and 26, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That phrase is a great phrase, save completely those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What amazing truth this is. Keep in view the keeping power of Jesus Christ. Our Savior. Keep in view, think of Moses in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights, and then think of him coming from the very presence of God directly into the scene of idolatry, the golden calf. What a jarring sensation that must have been. But then just think of Jesus Christ surpassing Moses in every way. It is a very great and encouraging truth of scripture that we do not keep ourselves yes we are called to persevere in faith and obedience and in hope and in love but God's people in Jesus Christ are kept by their God. Peter says that we are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God keeps us by enabling us to persevere in faith. But we're kept by the power of God by the intercession of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful truth this is. We want to think about the honor of Christ in our lives, and are we living for him in, face of the, in the face of the challenges of our life. It's reading about the heroic figure in missionary history, Henry Martin, who lived only to be 31. He died in 1812. But as a young man, after graduating at the top of his class in mathematics and receiving this coveted Wrangler Award, Martin shunned the prospect of prosperity in England and went to India as a missionary, as many of you know, a missionary to Muslims. And after translating the New Testament and the Book of Common Prayer into the Hindustani language, he went to Persia, which is now Iran, and translated the Bible into the Persian language, Language. And while he was in Persia, a Muslim friend there told him a story about an incident that supposedly had taken place during the Crusades. This friend said, Prince Abbas Mirza killed so many Christians that Christ from the fourth heaven took hold of Muhammad's skirt to entreat him to desist. This is what Henry Martin's Muslim friend, told him when he was in Persia. And Martin later writes, I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy. Well, when his friend told him this story, the friend observed his distress and asked him what was so offensive about what he had said. Henry Martin replied, this is the interesting quote, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me, if he was thus to be always dishonored. The astonished friend asked him, Why? And Henry Martin said, If anyone pluck out your eyes, there is no telling why you feel pain. It is feeling. It is because I am one with Christ that I am so dreadfully wounded. It's an interesting glimpse into the faith of a great missionary who died young, but who had a real zeal for the glory of God and making Jesus Christ known. I don't know what the challenges you may face to your faith this week might be. Keep in mind, God present with you through Jesus Christ, God still declaring that sin is a very serious thing, but also rejoicing that Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we are uh, in awe of the glory of your name. We know that it doesn't fill our minds and and our hearts like it should. We know that we are often weak in faith and we are struggling like the Corinthians or like the Israelites. We trifle with sin. O Lord, help us not to do that because of our awareness of you because of the promises of the gospel, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because of the the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Keep us through his love, we pray. Amen.